This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. AI art generators are everywhere these days. Dolly, Midjourney, Crayon, and so many more allow you to plug in a prompt and get some bizarro artistic interpretation of it. For most of us, myself included, these platforms are just a fun thing to goof around with. But like so much of what AI touches, there are some big questions that need answers when it comes to AI-generated art. Like who owns the images that feed into these generators? Who owns the images that these generators produce? And is it even possible to control something once it's online? This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Last week, we touched on the relationship between ownership and creativity in the context of fandom, and now we're diving into AI artwork. First up, we talked to Winton Yates, an entertainment lawyer, TikToker, and if you heard our fandom series, a Mandalorian cosplayer. On his TikTok channel, Winton often talks about how AI affects artists with a focus on protecting the rights of artists and creators. I handle a lot of copyright infringement and trademark infringement issues. So uh, intellectual property is my everyday life. The issue here is not only all of the complex legal issues that are coming up because of artificial intelligence generating these works and how it is doing it, but also the ethical issues that are arising from it. So artificial intelligence is going to push human innovation forward in a magnificent way. However, if we do not pay attention to it right now from a legal and ethical standpoint, it's going to get out of control and it's really going to be devastating to artists and entertainment professionals across the board. Winton, like many others, pointed out that the process behind AI-generated works is pretty secretive in some cases. But that isn't an excuse for the copyright infringement that some developers claim to be ignorant of. So for me, that's one of the biggest issues is really actually understanding and finding out from these platform developers what is scraping, how does it work. Obviously, they're not coming out and telling us exactly how it works because they're not stupid. They understand the implications if they come out and say, yes, we are ingesting all of this existing work. Our systems are heavily ingesting it, heavily learning from it, and then spitting and generating works out from those works. They understand how copyright works and that like you as a copyright owner have the exclusive right to develop derivative works from your work. The CEO of Midjourney did an interview with Forbes magazine and the interviewer asked him straight up about scraping and all of the images that were being used to train the Midjourney platform. And he admits that hundreds of millions of existing works were used to train that platform. Uh, and then when he was asked, you know, was there any permission given on behalf of these artists to use this stuff? He said, no, there was no way for us to go out and find out who owns these art pieces or these creative works, which is a lie. Ownership, when it's registered, is public information. You can go on copyright.gov and you can look up who owns a piece of creative work, whether it's a piece of art, a movie, a script, whatever. If it's been registered, you can go look it up. Uh, and then even if it hasn't been registered, 
our understanding of copyright law in the U.S. is that copyright is a automatic per the Constitution, Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eight, and the 1976 Copyright Act. As long as a work is original, it is fixed at a tangible medium of expression. Your protection is automatic. It's loose, but it's automatic, right? It gets strengthened when you actually go and register it, but your copyright is automatic. So it doesn't matter if it's registered or not. That's all to say that as these platforms are being built and developed, if they are being built and developed, A, with an ignorance to how copyright law works in the U.S., A, ignorance of the law is not a defense, but if they're building it with an ignorance of how copyright law works, that is a huge ethical issue. Winton thinks that as various court cases go through litigation, including the current lawsuit against Stability AI and Midjourney, we'll see new rules established. Many of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit are artists and illustrators who have seen their work imitated by AI generators, which is a very real threat to their careers. And at the moment, it seems highly unlikely that paying artists for the use of their work in these generators is something developers have a plan for. When you've got AI platforms that are taking in and ingesting hundreds of millions of pieces of work at a time in a split second, it's gotten to a point where I don't think there's a way to go back and actually compensate those artists other than those artists filing at this point, filing class action lawsuits because they have no choice. You've given these artists zero choice. If you are doing a licensing deal with an artist, whether it's a musician or a visual artist, you're going to them and saying, hey, I would like to license out your work to use. They have a choice to say, yes, these are the terms or no, I don't want to license out my work. In this case, these AI platforms are just going and sweeping in all of this work and not giving artists a choice on whether they want their work to be used to train these AI generators, which I think is ethically wrong. It's also important to note that according to the law right now, human authorship is a requirement for something to be copyrighted. This was already legally tested with a graphic novel called Zarya of the Dawn by Chris Castronova, who used Midjourney to help her create the illustrations. Parts of it were generated by AI. Parts of it were created by her. Originally, they awarded her the copyright, and it was a big deal because it was the first AI-generated creative work to be given copyright. But they backtracked and said, but wait, we didn't realize this was generated by artificial intelligence. So they revoked it partially. The parts of it that are human authorship have copyright. The parts of it generated by artificial intelligence are not. And when you can't copyright something, it becomes public domain, meaning anyone can use that image or art without licensing it. So where does this leave artists and creators? Because as Winton reminded us, one of the original intentions of copyright law was to encourage innovation and creativity by giving people a way to protect and profit from their works. I have clients and followers on TikTok who are constantly telling me, hey, I'm not putting my work out anymore because I'm afraid that it's going to get swept up into these AI generators. That is the literal stifling of artistic in innovation. People are not wanting, artists are not wanting to put their work out because they don't want to be susceptible to being ingested into an AI generator. And now they are stopping putting their original works out until we figure out how to go forward and protect their original works. And I totally understand where they're coming from as a creator myself. 
But you have to think about like an artist who spends 40 hours hand drawing or hand painting a piece of work. It gets ingested by AI and that AI kicks out a piece of work in 0.25 seconds, similar to theirs. And it's, well, what did I spend 40 hours creating this piece of work for when that thing can just kick it out in a half a second? Or somebody who spent their life writing a movie script and they they have this movie script that they want to go and sell and option out and they want to shoot it and they want to present it to people. When you got AI that can kick out a movie script in like two seconds. In fact, in the current writer strike, one of the union's demands is for studios to limit the role of AI in script writing and protect the writer's work from being used to train AI. But on the other hand, there are plenty of artists and creators who are enthusiastic about the possibilities of AI, even if the situation is complicated. More on that after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Okay, so we just heard from entertainment lawyer Winton Yates about the risks AI poses for creators. But I think it's safe to assume that AI is here to stay and that many artists are excited about incorporating it in their works. My name is Stephanie Dinkin. I am a transmedia artist who is working with AI at the intersection of race, gender, aging, and what I like to refer to as our future history. So, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. There's so much to unpack here. So I just want to start at a top level and ask, how would you describe the art that you create? If I had to describe it, I would say that I'm looking at Black stories and seeing how they intersect with technology. And that could be from a multiplicity of directions, right? So I have one project where I'm literally talking to a robot and documenting that process. Mm. That's one way it expresses Excel. I have another project where I then try to make a chatbot, right, that holds the perspective of my family or the ethos of my family and tries to tell our story. So I made a bunch of data and put it into a chatbot system and then made a sculpture for it so that people would feel comfortable talking to it in one way or another. Or maybe it's an interactive installation that features like drawings of plants and flowers with these towering Black women in it that have then interactive stories that are playing while you mill around the space. Mm, That is so fascinating. And how did you come to this work? Because as an artist, there's a multitude of ways to express, specifically what you mentioned, like race, gender, and aging. But what do you think this layer of tech, this layer of AI adds to your work? Well, tech for me has always been a thing in a way, maybe not this high tech, right? So I'm a photographer by training who really likes the documentary form or to archive history. And so then if you just think about, well, I want to capture stories that capture Blackness in the way that I understand it, right? And then each time I start seeing or doing that, I tend to see technologies in the world that feel like they might express what I'm trying to get to a little bit better, Hmm. right? So in the 90s, that meant, oh, I'm in photo school, but I'm going to start doing video just because it felt a little bit different. 
And then as I've gone on, I've just always been reaching for that next modality, right? That has a little extra. And really, when I ran into that robot that I was describing, those conversations that we were having that I videotaped, there's something about talking to a thing that looks like you that says it is one of the most advanced and examples of its kind that opens a world of questions, right? Right. And those questions have just led to me like asking more questions and then looking deeper into the technology to try to get at those questions from another direction. I love that. I would love it if you can describe your creative process, because if you can really just unpack what goes into creating something like this, like where do you start? Because this technology is so expansive and art itself can be so expansive. So what's your creative process? How do you set like guardrails for yourself to not go off into the ether? Like how do you go about making one of these artworks? Yeah, I wish I could say I had guardrails because in a way for me, it's about adventure and curiosity. Okay. Right. And curiosity leads, which gets me into trouble, right? The idea of curiosity killing the cat is real because it's, oh, I'm interested in robotics and AI. I guess I have to learn about those things. (laughs) One should hope. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I have no capacity or talent for these ways of working in code, but this seems to be what it calls for. Right. And so that led to me for a 10 year examination and trying to figure stuff out. So it's about a curiosity about something and then trying to figure out how I translate that for myself really and how I can record it to really look at it and start to dissect it in some ways. But the adventure of figuring out is the one that really drives my practice. And that's why I might make one kind of thing at one point and something that looks really different at another point because I'm just following what is being asked for through the investigation. And so how would you say working in this modality of AI has changed your perspective on art? Well, I think I've always had a kind of broad perspective on art Mm -hmm. in terms of what that meant. Because honestly, though I have an MFA and all that stuff, I feel like my art training came from my grandmother's gardening. Watching that happen was the way I began to think about art and social practice. So my chatbot is housed in this very odd cast glass sculpture that has the faces of three women on it. And that's as a tool of seduction to get you to interact with a thing though. Right. So my aesthetics are generally about pulling people in to get them in to engage something that they might not have if it was just put out as what it is, right? A computer with some voices on it, for example. Right. And I'm so glad you brought up your grandmother because you have this really beautiful statement that you wrote talking about how, you know, your grandma, like seeing her and making her art really sparked your career as an artist. And so in in this statement, you're talking about her upcycling old parts and making it into something new and really having this a transformative experience with art in a way. And so do you see a through line between what your grandmother did to what you're doing right now with AI, knowing that in some context of AI, you're giving a prompt and then it's like pulling things that exist already and creating something. So I'd love it if you can just trace a through line, if it exists, between what your grandmother did and what you're doing now. 
That's a really great question. And in a way, I'm like, well, it's just there, right? I just want to go, <laughs> it's there and I trust it, right? But if I have to think about it more deeply and think about what it means to upcycle something or take something and turn it into something much better, mm-hmm. I can think about like manure comes to mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. To, to someone who gardens, manure is gold Yeah, that allows flowers to grow and thrive in a different way. And then I think about that manure in relation to data. Hmm. And when I'm thinking about the data that I've been using, which is small data derived from my family, which is actually not enough to make something that's thriving. And then the foundational earth that was already there, which would be the larger data sets that people generally build on top of, and how I use my family's data as the manure to enrich what's underneath come through with this metaphor i love this <laughs> right? like how do we do that enrichment that really changes the game and allows for something different that is beautiful that's really beautiful thank you keep on this theme of gardens and whatnot you do have a web experience called secret garden and in the description you said our stories are our algorithms which i found really interesting so what did you mean by that exactly yeah i meant Going from playing in the material and the code and how algorithms take information and then use that to inform, analyze it. I was thinking, well, we've been given algorithms of people forever. Like we have fables, we have myths, Mm -hmm. we have the stories that you heard at your grandfather's knee. And those are often things that tell you how to be in the world, like how you might conduct yourself, right? They're the stories that instruct you how to be. And to me, that's definitely an algorithm. And there are things that get passed down from one individual to the next. And for me, the question becomes, how do we keep those fables, those myths, those stories that enrich us strong? And how do we pull from them the ideas that we need to have foundations that we can go out into the world as whole people that understand ourselves in ways that allow us to thrive? And for me, really, that's a lot about thinking about the way I learned about American history. I grew up in white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so history for me, especially when we started talking about slavery, was always a challenge because it's that put upon. It's those people who didn't really contribute, those people who are used, right? But then if you think about it from the way my family might have said it, it's yes, those were hard times. But we know how to farm. We know how to do all of these things because of that. The fact that we made it through that means that there is a fortitude within us that allows for understanding and getting through things in ways that others can't. And to be able to unearth and use that as an algorithm that you use today, like just knowing that you're that strong, to me is magical. The way you describe it is magical, because, uh, and I'm glad I asked the question, because I don't think I would have processed it like that, Right, and which is so interesting to me. And I mean, clearly, you're leaning into AI and technology in your art, but there does exist a lot of tension between artists and AI. And so if we pull the lens back a little bit, I mean, what do you make of this discourse around art and AI, particularly the people who do feel that it's a detriment to art. Yeah. So where I land there is I believe that AI is part of our ecosystem. It does not seem to be one of those things that's going to be pulled back 
In fact, it's something that's going to come at us quicker than we could ever expect exponentially and change the way we do things. The question for me always becomes, well, do we dig in and fight it, which feels like almost a losing battle, right? Or do we start to figure out how we use the opportunities within it? And I would rather be on the train early and figure it out than have spent a lot of energy fighting against something that feels like an inevitability in some ways, right? Now, I'm not saying that people should not get paid for artwork that they've made. And I think we have to think about, well, how do we manage the ways in which things get sucked in, ideas, ways of working, and then others can just reproduce that without half a thought. Last night, I was preparing something for an article and asked Google's bard, oh, answer these questions in the voice of Stephanie Dinkins. It did. Oh. (laughs) There were some things in there I didn't like, so I X them out, but you're like, oh, yeah. yeah." (laughs) Which shows anybody could do that, actually, right? Yeah. But from my perspective, I'm always thinking about, like, how to enrich the thing and how to put and spread ideas. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, it's an amazing way to spread ideas that I don't even have to work at. Mm. And I've been lucky enough that, you know, not getting paid for it hasn't been a hindrance. Like my intellectual property has not been hindered because I've been rewarded in different ways. However, like we need to figure out where those lines are, right? And how you follow them through and how we're going to think about them. But I will say that my, my ascendance in art my ascendance, whatever that means, was all about putting hey, an image in. You hey. have ascended. Listen, <laughs> no, one thing we don't do on this podcast is downplay achievements, or at least I make sure that my guests don't do that. I do that enough for everyone. So yes, you have ascended. All right. Well, thank you. Continue. <laughs> thank you. My ascendance, right, is about an image I put into the world. And I just put it on the internet very purposely. I was like, I'm going to act like a millennial and just put this image out there and see what happens was free for anyone to use and take. That image, however, has done more work for me than I ever could have imagined, Hmm. ever. And I'm glad that you brought up the point of what happens when you put your work out into the world, especially in the digital space, because as we know, a lot of the laws governing copyright have yet to catch up to where we are in the digital age. And this is something that people felt that the blockchain can solve and NFTs and you have this immutable ledger that says you own this. And uh, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that is, I don't, yes, but I think right now that's just not where most people are at in terms of like wanting to claim ownership of their art, because like, what does it actually mean? This is one thing that I was always wrapping my mind around about why NFTs became such a thing, because to say that you own like this piece of like digital content, what does that actually mean when I can just right click, copy, paste and have it on my own laptop or computer? Like I don't I don't need a certificate to say that I own it for me to appreciate it. And what would you want if you could just snap your fingers and create some layer of ownership that would work? What would that look like? Because I don't I'm not an artist. I don't have the answer. These are things that like this is I, we're in your world right now. So please walk me through it. 
It's a crazy question, right? I'm like a crazy host. A crazy, <laughs> you are a crazy host because I'm like, what does that look like? And I have to admit that I've operated often outside of the way that the art world operates, right? Mm. So I've never been interested necessarily in selling the work right. and having it in those stratospheres where people are doing it. I am interested in showing the work. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in the ideas beneath the work. And so that means for me, like this freemium idea Hmm. where you put it in in the world and then it does work and then some kind of compensation comes back at you at some point. And it might not be direct, right? Art before commerce, that's wild. What? Exactly. (laughs) Who would have thunked that? (laughs) Yeah, like I'm just putting it out because truly for me, um, it is the thought that counts Mm -hmm. and getting things into people's hands that counts. And so far, knock on something, like seriously, the money has followed. But I don't know that's sustainable for most people or the masses, right? If we're trying Mm -hmm. to say, oh, I am going to make my living from doing this thing. Like, how do you manage that? That's hard. It's difficult because making the starving artist trope is a trope for a reason. So it's yeah. like how, and you add this extra layer of losing control of your art that it just, you know, I think your approach into it, that's how I align myself with it. You're doing this because you love it. But of course, we live in a capitalist society. We can't escape that, that we need to like earn money to live. And why shouldn't you be able to earn a stable income from your art? I am curious to hear, what are you hearing in your artist circles? What is the conversation like right now? Because I feel like these are things that people hopefully are thinking about and wrestling with. So like, what are you hearing in your circles? Well, people are worried. Like you get it. People are worried because as you say, you put it out I can go, any artist who has work on the internet, if I want to clip that, blow it up, and even make a beautiful print of it. You can. (laughs) I can. What the ethics of that is, and all that becomes something else. Yeah, yeah. But then, so now what do you do? I'm so trying to think about what change means to us, right, and how we think through the change. Again, I'm thinking about not getting stuck on the models that exist, but trying to figure out models that work somewhat differently. And saying this at a time where it feels like lots of the models are drying up, right? Because in one sense, you're like, I'm like, well, I teach at a university. That becomes the basis for my income, which allows me some freedom to do things and to be able to say, well, I just put it on the internet. It doesn't matter. But even those jobs are not unlimited. True. And becoming more and more about adjunct workers versus people who have full-time solid gigs. Mm. But we see that happening in so many spaces, right? We've got all these gig workers who make enough to get by, who can maybe send stuff back to their own countries, right? And support themselves, but don't have the true kind of foundation that holds them, which I think just slides. And that's a much bigger negotiation than art. Oh, yeah. That's a societal conversation that we need to be having Mm -hmm. about, okay, yeah, we see these shifts. We see the rugs being pulled out out from under folks, right? And we see benefits being taken away. How is this going to serve society? It's 
really not. <laughs> it's not, right? What do we got to say about that? Because we're going to all face it, and it feels like it's going to get ugly. It already is ugly, to be yeah, perfectly I'm, honest. <laughs> it already is, but I feel like it's going to get Oh, yeah, it's going to get worse. Yeah. I want to get your feedback on something because we actually interviewed an entertainment lawyer about this topic, and he pointed out that human authorship is one of the requirements for copyright. And so there's a graphic novel where the author uh, only got partial copyright. And so what is your take on that? Do you think the law should change? Again, I'm going to be like, well, I'm the crazy person who's letting go of all that mm-hmm. in certain ways, right? I'm trying not to be so concerned with this idea of copyright. If I put out a book, right, I did the labor to put out this book, even if I worked in collaboration with an AI. It was my labor. It was my prompting. It was the ways that I did it that made this thing come. Where are we going to compensate this computer? We need to be compensating the human and protecting their ability to make money from their labor, right? And I don't think just because a computer helped, they did not do the labor. And so, yeah, we want to be able to at least pay those folks. Does that have to depend on copyright in the ways that we see it now? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Because that's a whole other ball of wax. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like one of those we're holding on to tightly in terms of who made it, how it was made, and who's getting compensated. However, we can't let like the top of the rungs, right? So the top of the ladder, which we know is that, that happens a lot. So the top mm-hmm. of the ladder takes their cut, and the artists below don't get a cut or get such small cuts that it, it's barely livable, right? Hmm. I think all of these are questions that are much larger societal questions that we almost have to have the biggest sit down together And if nobody wants to have the sit down, we need to be starting to say, getting in the streets, getting on our computers, using the AI to disrupt things. No, no, no. We need to figure this out because we can see already where it's leading and it's not good for most people. I agree. I agree. Pay the human. Before we started this, I was on a very impassioned tirade that when my producer brought up the fact that somebody, a monkey, took a photo and people were just like, well, does a monkey have rights to that copyright? I'm like, no, what is a monkey going to do with <laughs> copyright? What? So no, it should go to the human. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to go, but why not? Oh, but what is a monkey? <laughs> okay, you do need some guardrails. Rain it in, rain it in. Yeah, I know. See, I told you I need guardrails, right? <laughs> it is compelling, but I always wonder what would a monkey do with a copyright? What would a computer do with a copyright if, like, the law said, hey, this AI, this code deserves some copyright? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do? This is the way I think about this. 150 years ago, 200 years ago, somebody would have said, what does that black person need with a copyright? See? (laughs) They don't know what to do with it. Okay, if we're talking, yes. No, this is true. Because if we're talking about just in terms of people thinking that something X is subhuman, then, Mm -hmm. which you're right, there was a time. (sighs) Like, it's so hard. (laughs) It's so hard, right, to start to think about these things. Some of the questions that are coming up, what does it mean to be human Mm -hmm. in the age of AI, right? And then I'm like, okay, human is one thing. Well, what does sentience mean? And where do we cut off these lines? Yeah. Speaking of racism, we've (laughs) definitely seen 
the AI can be very biased because you're thinking about the people who are like coding this and creating the AI who have, they, they come in it with their own biases. How do you think using AI in creative spaces can change the racism and bias that exists in AI itself? Oh, so the way I think about that is thinking about the impediments you run into, right? Or mm-hmm. the biases you run into. Looking at those and trying to model differently. Because often when I'm working in code and with the tech, and then I ask people for help and how you do something differently, they're like, oh, that's not how it's done. And my question is, well, why not? And how do we change it? And we can see that there are problems, right, in the way that information is analyzed, in the data that is being used because our histories are so tainted, right? Where do we start to mold and massage things or compensate within the code to counteract biases, if that is even possible, right? To at least flag biases. Mm -hmm. How do we start to do that? And who gets to decide what the bias is Mm -hmm. and how you're going to deal with it? I had a really interesting experience in trying to make an NFT and working with a stable diffusion system. So I'm using generative AI that makes text to video, right? Like a quick video. And I was doing a story that had a slave ship in it. And it's interesting because the system would not give me an image of a slave ship. Hmm. Now, this is a system that is trying to do good, to clean up. Uh But at the same time, that refusal is a refusal of a historic fact which we cannot afford to let go that easily. It's not as easy as just saying, get rid of that information, Mm -hmm. but then how do you weight it? Mm -hmm. Or how do you correct it so that we know if something is biased, information, let's say, is biased, that we know it's there, we're not erasing it so that it's gone. And in fact, it's a mirror of who and how we are and how we became what we are, mm-hmm. but also that it so that it does not taint results. I've interviewed so many creators who have their content has been flagged or they've been like taken down because the algorithm cannot decipher if somebody's using this as like educational purposes or being racist. So it's obviously very imperfect and you still need humans to help decipher that because you just can't fully rely on it because I fully understand like, why would you need a slave ship? I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to this because are you going to be gross about this? But no, you're using it in your art. So that is really interesting. Huh? Yeah. It's interesting to me because I feel like the better the systems get, right? The more vigilant we have to be because it's going to look like it's doing so well. It's going to look like, oh my gosh, look how well it's doing representation now. It can, But what's underneath that and what do we really have to be looking for becomes a big question. So taking that into consideration, knowing that there's so much more money being invested into the space, where do you see this going in the next five, even 10 years? Yeah. (laughs) It depends on which imagination I'm using, right? (laughs) Am I using my doomsday imagination? (laughs) You tell me. Like, I feel, you know what? (laughs) Let's use your optimistic, because I feel like we've touched on so much doom and gloom. Let's start with the optimism. So if we're thinking about the optimistic imagination, then, okay, AI is this great tool. It's a partner. It's a collaborator that we can use to help us get by some of our own biases 
or at least calculate out some of the ways in which we judge each other or the way we apply medicine or dole out medicine, right? Because we can correct for the biases that a doctor might have. So you can see it being able to start to erase some of the problems. But this means it was trained really well and openly with ideas of support, understanding, and care beneath it versus the other side of surveillance, right? And earning capital for whoever made it being the supreme goal. So it becomes about how do we start to guide it towards something that helps us develop in ways that are interesting. When it is doing things that we used to do, say it's making certain kinds of art or illustration, where's the space for the human in the system? Because we're just talking about, well, we still need humans to do things. And if we want stories to hold on to some element of human knowledge in particular, then we're going to have to guide it. It's not going to get there on its own. I think it needs to be nurtured and stewarded in very particular ways. And if we can do that, like I can see very interesting things happen, like life becoming easier in certain ways and us being able to exercise our creativity even deeper because we're not distracted by little things. Which could be super nice. It could be super nice. Could and be. I'm hoping that you lead us there. I mean, listen, <laughs> we need as many people thinking along these lines. Yeah, I think a healthy, half the time I feel crazy for the point of view because it feels ah. like, eh, you know. But I think we need that, right? We need yeah. some people who are willing to just take the leap. Oh, yes. Take the ride and see what happens. I agree. Stephanie for president, everyone. But like, <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephanie, thank you so much. This is something that I could talk about for a very long time because there's just so there's so much uncharted territory. And I just I'm just so fascinated to get perspective of where thought leaders, and I'm including you as a thought leader in the space, see it going. So you've given me and everyone listening a lot to think about. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'm like, let's all be thought leaders on this. Like, I feel like we all need to be on this, like, very true crowdsourcing. Oh, yeah. The idea of what we need through these technologies. Yeah. I'm like, don't be scared. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone take the leap with Stephanie and just jump over that edge. So, uh, just go over. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are so welcome. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. As always, make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to rate and comment as well because it really helps the podcast. And I love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. And our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Joshua Christensen.